Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. Today is Thursday, August 5th, 2021. Christine Rosen is out this week. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Two days after the Biden administration announced that it was using its emergency powers, the CDC's emergency powers, again to extend the eviction moratorium in places where uh, the virus is especially uh, prevalent, uh, which covers most of the United States, apparently. Uh, The uh, leftist legislators who, uh, who pushed the Biden administration to do this thing are are in wild uh, exuberant celebration mode, and uh, and uh, led by uh, Cory Bush, the freshman congressman from St. Louis, who took the a remarkable and stunning step of sleeping outside on the Capitol steps for a night to highlight the horrors of of, of eviction. Apparently. Uh, the Biden administration uh, made this decision, even though that day or earlier that day, Gene Sperling uh, of the White House had said that they had quadruple checked and that there was no modality based on the Supreme Court's finding that would allow them to extend the eviction moratorium. They had uh, quadruple checked, said Gene Sperling. So apparently five times was the charm, and they uh, they quintuple checked, and uh, now there is an eviction moratorium back in place until until the Supreme Court presumably uh, hears or or court hears the landlord's protest, uh, which you know has already been filed, and uh, immediately uh, rescinds it. So I don't want to talk about we talked about the poli- we talked about the sort of the. Uh, what was wrong with it yesterday. I want to talk about the politics of this today because something very interesting is going on in Washington among the uh, leftist legislators um, who are so excited uh, about what has happened here. Uh, And I'm looking for the quote in particular that really stunned me by Mondaire Jones, another, I believe, first-term congressman, uh, member of the squad from New York. Remember what they what happened was that the that the Supreme Court had said that uh, the ban uh, had to end, but they were going to give it till J- July 30th to end because that's when it expired and thus gave the legislature a window to pass a law that would not then simply be an emergency measure, and no, nothing happened. Uh, presumably because the House felt that the Senate wouldn't take it up or wouldn't vote for it, so why should they bother? But nothing happened. And then, you know, the week uh, that the uh, eviction moratorium was to end, uh, suddenly there was a flurry of the White House has to do something, and the White House said it couldn't do something. Okay. So here's what Mondaire Jones, a legislator, a member of the House of Representatives, said to the Washington, said Tuesday evening during a news conference in front of the House steps, quote, we forced the White House to do better. There's so much at stake still. We know there is a looming deadline with respect to the cause on the collection of student loan debt and the accrual of interest. And make no mistake that the White House will not be allowed to say that it didn't know that deadline was looming. So. What they are excited about is that they, as legislators, force the White House to legislate from the executive branch. Okay? they This is their job, and they are urging the White House to do their job and not to do, and, and it is not their responsibility to do their job. It is the White House's responsibility to violate the Constitution to do their job uh, in their place. Uh, This is kind of um, staggering. And Cori Bush put it this way. 
activists are in Congress, so let's be clear, expect for things to be different than maybe what people are used to. We don't have the same eyes, the same background, or agenda as some others. We are servant leaders. We serve first. So as leaders, uh, they don't want to lead because they uh, what they want is to use their power to put pressure on the White House to act as a legislative branch. And um, that's, I think, pretty stunning. It's completely of a piece with what we have discussed before here. It's like it marks the total transformation of legislators into activists and performance artists. It's in keeping with what the Texas Democrats did uh, with their uh, PR stunt trip. Um, they are, if their role is to um, be sort of influencers, right? I mean, that's, that's, how, that's how they see it. And then the actual work of, of governing um, happens as a result of their rabble-rousing and, and performance. Look, they're supposed to be activists in, in, in some sense. that They are the people in America who are uh, chosen by other Americans to come to Washington and to do things on their behalf. But it's hard to do things because our system does not simply allow you to wave a magic wand and do things. It's complicated. It's difficult. And uh, the very fact that you want it doesn't mean that it gets to get done. Uh, that is the horrifying temptation to which we now have three administrations succumbing in a row. Uh, Obama with the with the Dreamers and DACA and uh, Trump uh, with his um, with the uh, I don't know travel ban. There are various other things, and now Biden with the eviction moratorium. But that's the thing about <clears throat> our system. And that's what frustrates activists. I mean, they describe themselves as activists first. So you get your answer there as to whether or not they have any interest in legislating. But it moves slowly. And if you don't work within its parameters, it moves slowly against you. So now, if they were to pursue incremental legislation, if they were to try to build coalitions within their, their party and advance legislation or advance an amendment that you know pursued the sort of policies that they would like, they wouldn't get what they wanted immediately. And they wouldn't get all of what they wanted ever. But they might get something now because they've chosen this course. They'll get what they want for a very small period of time, at which point the courts will intervene, establish for all time the illegality of this sort of thing uh, and foment a political backlash insofar as one is possible. Uh, and I think one is possible. I don't know the scale of it, but one is possible with this sort of maneuver, um, which ultimately contributes to uh, a real determinative judgment on the misapplication of executive power here and how wrong they were and how they misguided this White House. And you're starting to see this in the Cognoscenti in, in, um, in Washington. People like uh, James Holman of the Washington Post saying, listen, you don't need to shore up your left flank. If this is an effort to shore up your left flank, look at what happened to Nina Turner. You know, you don't, you don't have to worry about this, guys. Your priorities are all wrong here and it's gonna backfire on you. And I think he's right. Um, but it'll take some time to see that. So they're, they're, it's, it's, very, it's a short-sighted pursuit of instant gratification at the risk of a much grander defeat later on. And in a sense, it's easier. It's because you can be uncompromising in activism uh, in the way that you cannot be uncompromising in um, legislating. It's much, much harder to, uh, to see through incremental change than it is to demand uh, maximalist things. Yeah, if you were to poll unconstitutional stuff, just ask the public. The president says, you know, frame the question this way. The president says no legal authority to does this to do this, but nevertheless, uh, Cory Bush says it's necessary to keep people in their homes. Do you support this action in order to keep people homes even at the risk of violating the Constitution? They wouldn't get the answer they like. The public still really likes the Constitution. I don't agree with you at all. I mean, if you frame it that way, yes. If you frame it as... I mean, it's not me framing it that way. It's literally the President of the United States framing it that way. No, no. Here's what I'm saying. If you ask people, should the President do, you know, sh you know, if you ask on, an, on a popular issue, which I, I, I suspect 
the eviction moratorium is not. But but in general, it is often the case that not anti-constitutional things, as long as they're popular, would be popular whether or not people knew theoretically that they were violations of the Constitution. If right. you ask issue by explicit. issue. Right. As long as you ask issue by issue. Biden, I believe, has decided that it is worth it for him to have the humiliation of a court or the Supreme Court, whatever, slapping him down and saying, you just did something bad and stop it right now. Then to say, my powers are limited, you idiots. We have survived for 245 years Okay, not 245 years since the Constitution's passage. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Um, but we have survived using this uh, system of checks and balances, and 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 I don't have the power to do what you want me to do. Go take a two-hour refresher course in how your and how the government works, since you are part of the government, and shut the hell up. And he decided basically to say, "Okay, fine." We're, I'm going to, the CDC is going to find this and then we're going to get slapped down. So you can't be mad at me anymore for what I did. He thought that's better than, than having the humiliation of the, of, of the, whoever slapping him down. That's new. See, people generally speaking don't like to do things and then have courts overturn them. It looks bad. It feels bad. It is humiliating, particularly if they knew that it was going to happen in the first place. But everything has gotten thrown out of whack. It is better for Biden to to give them this win that will then hand him a defeat than it is, he believes, for him to stand up and say what it is that he is saying. I mean, that presumes that literally everything has changed since 2014. Are we living in a completely different country than we were in 2014? What do you, what do you, what are you referring to? What about DACA? The overturning of DACA was an abject humiliation, completely animated and mobilized a coalition of voters that no one saw coming that took the Senate away from Democrats. I mean, that strongly contributed, if not was the primary contributor. I mean, yeah, that was a humiliation with profound political consequences. Okay. Well, first of all, if you asked Obama today, and this is where Democrats are different from Republicans and all that, if you asked Obama today, was he proud of what he did with uh, with with the Dreamers? He would say yes. He, would he say had the done same thing something about noble. He had done something noble by attempting to help people who were suffering. And you know what? He did what he thought was best out of a desperate help, a desperate wish to help people, right? So that's the, now, would you then say, okay, but you lost in 2014? And he has already made argument for that. Nobody voted in 2014. Our people stayed away. It was only 32% of the electorate. So it doesn't even count. I mean, that's what he said the night after, the night after nine uh, Republicans won nine Senate seats. And, and Biden can say this too. I'm proud of doing something to help people who are suffering because they can't pay rent. Now, does this mean that there isn't going to be a grassroots wave against him on this as an issue? I think very likely yes, but it's not the generic constitution problem. It is um, people saying, as I said yesterday, hey, wait a minute, you know, why do they not get to pay their rent? And I paid my rent. I don't understand. There are 44 million rental units in the United States. A million of them are in sufficient arrears that people get to be evicted for non-payment of rent. I'm one of them. I pay my rent. 43 million people are paying their rent. One million people aren't paying, one million households aren't paying their rent. Why are they getting this benefit that I'm not getting? Or... There are 8 million landlords in the United States. Why are the Democrats, why is the Democratic Party acting to ruin me, potentially, if something like this happens? Why are they not on my side, right? That's issue-specific. That I That's where I think Democrats, and I think this is where I do agree with you, Noah, that's where Democrats do not know what kind of beast they have loosed here 
by siding so decisively on a matter that frankly really is an issue a, you know close to being a bolshevist issue as we talked about yesterday but I, I, I mean i hope you're right i'm not sure that the issue breaks through broadly to that degree um because it first off it doesn't seem to be in terms of coverage um but also for there for it to affect a, a great shift um it would mean that some large proportion of those um, landlords would have been supportive of the Democrats before. Sure. Why, why wouldn't they have been? It's, there are 8 million people. They're not all Republicans. It's people who own a house and rent the basement of their house. And remember, with issues like this, it's not that there has to be a movement. It's not that there has to be a movement. It's that in 2022... They, it's like tax increases and why politicians are afraid of tax increases. It's not that there has to be a movement that says, I hate this tax increase. It's that when people go to the polls, they will think, are these people on my side or are they not on my side? It's pretty much that. Now, obviously, what I'm saying about 44 million rental units and people saying I paid and they didn't pay, I'm the only thing I'm using there as my benchmark is the revolt against, is the beginning of the Tea Party, which began precisely on the idea of suspending people's mortgage payments. Because in the wake of the financial crisis, there was a terrible arrears and mortgage payments. But again, as Rick Santelli said in inaugurating what became the Tea Party, 92% of people were making their mortgage payments on time. And all of politics and all of contract law in the United States was going to be temporarily revised for the benefit of the 8% who weren't. Why is that fair? Every one of those 92% of those people could have not been paying their mortgage under those conditions. And everybody... Everybody who, you know, has a shortfall in their rent right now can just not pay their landlord. That is the president of the United States has said, don't pay your landlord. (laughs) You don't have to. And there'll be no consequences for it. Right. Yeah, there's plenty of um, programs that you can take advantage of if you're genuinely financially distressed. And the press is replete with stories of, you know, landlord, land owners with their one income property, not talking about the big fat cats here, uh, who are getting stiffed by people who are taking advantage of lawlessness, of the suspension of property rights. I mean, it's such a violation of, when you put it in those terms, it is such a violation of the social compact Mm -hmm. that it is as foundational as it gets. Right. But, you know, the other thing is, I mean, do Corey Bush and Mondaire Jones and these members of the squad, do they want... Americans to think that their constituents and the people that they support are just, you know, uh, lawless uh, indigents who, uh, you know, basically live off everybody else. I mean, it's like some kind of a horrible return to racist cliche to say, hi, I'm I'm an activist, you know, African-American congresswoman. And what I want is for you not to prosecute criminals who live in my district, not to, you know, to, to make it okay for people not to pay rent, because that's who I represent, are criminals who don't pay rent. This is my constituency, Mondaire Jones, Cory Bush. This is a horror. Like, this is an American horror. They are, they are contributing actively, knowingly, and purposefully to the creation, the 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 uh, resuscitation of a caricature about poor and minority people and how they live in the United States, and a caricature about these far left activists as Bolshevists, as yeah. as Marxists, yeah. in in the in the strictest yeah. definitional sense of the term. I mean, right. you, you get a lot of activists on the right who throw that word around willy nilly, yeah. but this this fits the bill, and. Again, I I think the public likes the Constitution quite a bit. I don't think the public likes Marxists, especially legislators, especially much. And when you put yourself in that box, yeah, the political consequences are terrible. But what have we heard from Democrats who have anybody who's trepidatious about this beyond instrumental political exposure? Where is the principle on display? 
where are the people? And I, I, the, there's kind of this crude Twitter discourse where people are like, oh, where are the people who are complaining about my norms? Where are my norms and my culture and my law under Donald Trump? And it's crude and obnoxious, especially within 24 hours of the event. But we're 36 hours out now from the president saying, I'm about to violate the law, then did so. Where are these people t- standing up for principle? Well, they're, but they're, they're standing up for another principle. They're, they're, they're still saying it's about COVID and that this is a time when we need to uh, support uh, Americans who are having um, an especially hard time in this you know, a uh, unique sort of emer- extended emergency situation. Is that a principle? That's that's not but really a even, principle. That's just an extenuating way, circumstance. But the extenuating circumstance is garbage. Of course. They're getting $600 a week in unemployment insurance, number one. Number two, there's a vaccine out there. So if they, they can get it so they can avoid getting sick from COVID, if they don't get it, it's not our responsibility or even it's their own responsibility and the possibility that they might be spreading the Delta variant to other people. There is no special pain being endured by Corey Bush's constituents that, 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 that merits or justifies such a thing. This is not an emergency. We are not an emergency. And the emergency was dealt with, with an extraordinary influx, uh, you know, outpouring of federal dollars precisely to support people who were in trouble from the pandemic. And so all they're saying is we want landlords not to have the right to evict people who don't pay their rent. And then implicitly, once again, does this mean, does this mean that they, you know, are basically saying that the people they represent are lawless indigents and, you know, uh, people who don't abide by contract? What What other lesson are we supposed to take from this? I mean, except for Bolshevism, right? The only argument is, well, actually, it's not that. It's that they are they are the, they are ideologically opposed to private property, you know. So it's not it's really that they, it's not really that they're it's not really that they're smearing their own voters and the, their own people who live in their own district. It's that what they're really doing is trying to you know kill private property um, uh, in the you know in the rights of the rights of property owners in the United States. Um, but just to just to move on to that, why are the Democrats doing this? So there is a piece, another piece in the Washington Post. Uh, Pelosi faces energized left wing on top of razor thin House margin by Paul Kane. Basically, it begins with Pelosi in 2019 dis- dismissing the squad as having four votes, and now you know pushing Biden to again like uh, trump congressional power and do what he can do with executive action. And uh, here's the reason that it's happened. Pelosi is sitting on a three-seat majority in the House. There are three seats vacant because of special elections. Right now, the Democratic majority is three seats. So if three squad members don't want to vote for something, they can kill it because assuming all the Republicans vote against it, uh, there we are. Okay, and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said... Quote, when you have to play hardball, you have to play hardball, and we're not afraid to do that. Okay? So they're basically threatening to destroy the Biden administration uh, using hardball tactics. And the hardball tactics are, we won't vote for things. Or, you know, if you don't do X, we won't, won't do Y. So they are essentially standing as a rump against their own president and their own party and are frightening Pelosi to death with the prospect that they might, if the three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation, the budget bill uh, that that comes down uh, ends up being $3.1 trillion after the Senate, you know, uh, fiddles around with it, uh, that they'll vote against it. Um. So is this just naked power politics or is something else going on? I guess it, de- it depends on how you, what you thought of the, the Freedom Caucus, right? Did you think that the Freedom Caucus circa 2015 was acting in defense of first principles when it opposed 
the vast majority of what Republican majority majorities wanted to do and could kind of get away with their opposition and standing on principle and not actually sacrificing legislation in the process. Although they did, <clears throat> they did scuttle a couple of initiatives over the course of their lifetime that were, that were pretty instrumental and made a name for themselves in the process. Or did you think that they were just grandstanding um, opportunists who at the first sign of, uh, of said opportunity would abandon this principle in pursuit of political power? I don't think that the analogy holds because Obama was president in 2015. What we have here is a Democratic president with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. The Senate is in, you know, doesn't even have a margin, right? The Senate's 50-50, so the vice president can break a tie. There is a three-seat majority in the House. And what you have here is Democrats threatening Democrats. You have a Democratic House rump that is saying that we will take the Democratic president down if he doesn't do what we want. That's entirely different from the House Freedom Caucus threatening John Boehner's efforts to like get the debt ceiling passed or something like that, or to or for the simple the good continuance of good government when Boehner was himself totally opposed to most of the initiatives of the you know, uh, of the Obama administration. This is it. This is something. I, I think it is. Okay, um, go ahead. Uh, it is naked power politics. And I think if you look at it as um, uh, AOC is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Joe Biden is not. This is power politics. In her, this is her will to power on behalf of socialism and, so, and, 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 and the Socialist Party that she belongs to. Right. So the real question is, if you are not uh, apparently the new editor of the Washington Post uh, programming your people to write uh, celebratory articles about the wonders of the uh, tiny left wing rump in the House uh, that could uh, that could, you know, take take Pelosi down. Uh, But you uh, what you are a standard issue liberal in the United States. When do you start getting really mad at the squad? That's what I want to know. Like, let, let's just take as your counterexample, as a kind of example that does fit your model, Noah, John McCain and, and, the, and the Obamacare uh, vote against Obamacare uh, in the Senate uh, at the end of 2017. So he, you know, aimed right dead in the center of Trump's forehead as a Republican fired, took the bill down, uh, you know, three months, four months later, uh, he, you know, he gets sick and, and dies and, uh, uh, angry Republicans kind of celebrated his death. You know what I mean? I mean, that, that's where Trumpian Republicans hated McCain, who had been the nominee of the party only nine years earlier, hated McCain like they hated nobody on earth. We have the very distinct possibility of this uh, rump of Democrats, um, not only helping to destroy the Democratic majorities in the House and Senate next year, and maybe, by the way, helping to destroy them. I don't really know what's going to go on in that special election in Ohio and whether the Republican candidate has a chance. But had Nina Turner, the radical squad candidate, won and faced down Mike Carey, the Trumpian candidate, I assume that he would have had a much better chance than he has against uh, Chantel Brown, who is the Democratic nominee now. Um, like the, the Democrats are being threatened by these people in some ways, the way that the way that Trump was threatened by McCain. Where is the Democratic anger? But what is it? So, but what is it that the Democrats are still afraid of uh, in re- in regard to the to these people to the squad? Yes. Well, uh, they're um, uh, minorities and women, and so yeah. they have no vocabulary with which to criticize them. Yeah, but they're not primed for a sort of McCain-style, you know, uh, social reversal because there's just, like you said, there's no language for it. But there's no there's no ideological predicate for it either. Uh, they, this has been framed as this is the ascendant wing of the party. Their assumption is of, of you know the the reins of the party is historically 
destined. Um, and there's nobody out there making the alternative case. Who is there to stand? Like, ideally, Joe Biden would be very well positioned to be the alternative to this kind of lawless, progressive governance, will to power governance. Um, but he doesn't seem to want that. Democrats, America. Democratic voters are making the case. That's the story of the Ohio primary, right? Nina Turner raised somebody has million. to say it explicitly. Somebody has to go out there and take the well. That's what I'm saying. Slings and arrows. That's exactly what I'm saying. Where is the anger? Who is going to come out and say? We know on these private calls, Abigail Spanberger is saying, you know, your defund the police thing killed us in November. Abigail Spanberger is demanding, you know, that people are saying we need a more moderate agenda. It's really good that that Chantel Brown won, and that's a really good thing, and all of that, but not. Publicly, and that is an analog, let's say, to uh, to the cap party's ideolo- party's capture, right? So, Trump, right now, you can't say anything against Trump. Maybe the parallel is you can't say anything against the squad because they'll come after you and they'll raise money against you, and Bernie will come into your district and help you raise six million dollars. Now, maybe you can win, regardless, but uh, they maybe are occupying a kind of role in the Democratic Party that Trump occupies, in that they are scaring people away from drawing the conclusions, publicly drawing the conclusions that would help the party. uh, And also because they see the the squad and and the like, because they see their roles now as primarily activist, um, they are particularly well positioned to, to be able to scare you and intimidate you into uh, into right. uh, not defying them. I just don't know what results they need anymore to see that you know that the not only the American electorate but the Democratic electorate writ large is not with them, right? Alexandria Ocasio Cortez wins fifteen thousand votes to ten thousand votes in a primary in uh, you know in, in Queens and 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 the Bronx. Uh, and that's uh, propels her to power. And Joe Biden, you know, got what was it, sixty percent of the Democratic, more than sixty percent of the Democratic vote in the in the primaries. Um, that's you know, tens of millions of people voted for him. Fifteen thousand people voted for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Where's the where's the rational, sensible framework understanding here of who has the power? Now, granted, they may have this disruptive power. They may have this McCain-like, because of the weakness of the party's position in the House, that strengthens them in pushing their agenda and maybe means, you know, you don't want to fight with them because you don't want to create a public war when you need everybody to hang together. Um, one of the things that is restraining Democrats from going at Kristen Cinema's jugular that you can see little hints and emanations of it over the last couple. Of, she's weird. She's look at look at this expression she's making during her press conference. Let's zoom in on her and create a six second Twitter loop where we can see that she's making a weird expression while Joe Manchin is talking. I don't know, you know, like that. And people sort of wanting to go at Kristen Cinema, but worried about doing so because they don't want to give her any more reason. To say, I'm a maverick. I'm the John McCain maverick of the Democrats. And that's what's going to get me reelected. With that, let me take a pause and talk to you guys about ExpressVPN, which is the uh, service that helps anonymize your identity on the internet and spares you from having your data sold and marketed by big tech. So uh, that's what that's what a VPN does. It's an anonymizer. Lots of cheaper free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers. ExpressVPN doesn't do this. They even developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. And ExpressVPN now uses Lightweight, a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever. No technical skills are needed to use ExpressVPN. You download it, you fire up the app, there's a button that you push with your cursor, and you are connected. Uh, So anybody can use it, the most uh, tech-incompetent and tech-ignorant and tech-nervous have no difficulty with this. And it's not just me saying this. Seen at The Verge and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN, the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself 
with the VPN I use and trust. Use my link expressvpn.com slash commentary today and get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. Uh, so Tuesday, the report came out about Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo came out and said that he was the real victim and that people were being sexist toward his aide, Melissa DeRosa, and he only wanted to help the sexual abuse victim who worked for him and she misunderstood him and his mother taught him that he was supposed to put hands on people's faces to, to be loving and all of that. And now uh, every Democrat in New York State practically has called for him to leave office. The president has called for him to leave office. The senators from New York have called for him to leave office. The House delegation, the Democratic House delegation from New York has called for him to leave office. The chairman of the Democratic Party in New York State has called on him to leave office. The The person who would run an impeachment uh, uh, assembly leader, Carl Heasty, has said he can no longer remain in office. Um, and, uh, and three, uh, DAs, uh, in the state or four, maybe, uh, the Manhattan DA, the Albany DA, the Westchester DA, and somebody else are looking into criminal charges, uh, which apparently require uh, one of these 11 victims mentioned in the report to, to swear out some kind of a case against him. Anyway, uh, it, there seems to be a presumption that he is going to try to tough this out. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this is not, you know, yeah, everybody said Ralph Northam should, should resign. But Ralph Northam was supposed to resign because he was embarrassing people and he'd done something symbolically offensive by being in blackface. This is something else. This is something entirely different. He's got DA's, pro, pro, you know, he's got DA's chasing him. He's got the president of the United States and his own party saying he's got to go. And everybody in the state saying he's got to go. Where, where is, what is he toughing out? Where, where does he go from here? How does he have a meeting with anybody? How does he, you know, like, I, I don't even understand. I, I can't <clears throat> cite the quote for you. Yeah. But I remember it vividly because it made a lot of sense. Uh, during the Northam scandal, somebody close to Ralph Northam gave an off-the-record, not-for-attribution quote to one journalistic institution or another that, to this effect, if he were to resign under this cloud, he would brand himself forever and all time a racist. If he doesn't and stiffs it out, the news cycle will intervene. Events will intervene. The scandal will fade. And so that when, and he's term limited anyway only serve one term as a governor of the Virginia. So when he leaves the stage, the political stage, this will be there. But all the other stuff will intervene to, to minimize that as the central feature of his legacy. Why wouldn't Andrew Cuomo be operating under the same assumption? If he were to leave now, he would forever and all time be branded a handsy quasi-rapist. Okay, Whereas you- in, the, in yeah. the days that follow, events will intervene to water down that impression in the public imagination. Okay, I have a a ready answer for that. The Northam story was the worst that it could be on the first day. That is, the pictures came out, that was it. Well, we didn't know that, though, at the time. None of us knew that. Northam maybe did, but... But Northam maybe knew. Cuomo, I wrote, I have a column in the New York Post today on this very subject. Cuomo has made enemies for 30 years. He is a vicious, monstrous, horrible person. Who, who intimidates, threatens, and blackmails and uses emotional blackmail and uses political blackmail. And he did this for more than 30 years. He was his father's henchman when he was at HUD. He tried to get uh, a criminal proceeding launched against the inspector general whose job it was to look into his handling of Section 8 housing vouchers. Uh and, you know, and he, you know, he used his office uh, as attorney general to go after both Elliot Spitzer and David Patterson, his immediate, uh, his immediate predecessors. And he has basically, this is who he is. Um, and so people have a lot of grudges and they have a lot of material against him. And uh, he doesn't, is not going to have the resources to hit back at them. We've already seen what happened in his effort to hit back at his enemies when he, and this is part of the brief against him, 
after Lindsay Boylan, one of the two named uh, uh, accusers in the Tish James Attorney General report who came out publicly in, I don't know when it was, uh, last year uh, or earlier this year, to say that he, you know, he had sexually harassed her. Um, his his people, you know, compiled a file uh, against her and tried to retail it to journalists in in New York State, showing that she was, you know, irresponsible, a bad employee, whatever. And they went around and tried to get their friends in the you know activist community to uh, come out in defense of him and to attack her. Um, all of that has come out. Uh, journalists are not going to be very comfortable providing the context that Cuomo would want when all of the garbage that he has done to other people is going to come out when he wants to, when it will, he'll want to dump his oppo file on them. There's going to be a great deal of discomfort in helping him, you know, remain in office by going negative against his own people, right? This is not a court of law. In a court of law, you can introduce whatever you want to introduce as long as it's germane. It's not a court of law. It's a court of public opinion, and it's a court of elite opinion. The elite opinion has turned on him. There will be absolutely no reason or justification, uh, reason for liberal media outlets to provide him with that cover. Uh, and they don't want to, and journalists have also been on the receiving end of his horrible and disgusting intimidation tactics. They will want to see the back of him. He does not know, the longer this goes, the worse and worse and worse it's going to be for him. But if he went today or tomorrow or Friday or whenever, I guess tomorrow is Friday, so I shouldn't say today or tomorrow or Friday, uh, they might let up. Like, it's bad. His career's over. He's humiliated. Let him go. We don't need to, and as I say in my column, like there'll be books about it, but they'll come out in two years and no one will read them the same way no one read his book that he got $5 million for that he used state workers to write in violation of the law. If he doesn't want that to come out, if he doesn't want more activism on that front, uh, he has a chance here to get himself out with a with a with less damage than he will do to himself by staying in. That's my that's my argument. I- I mean, I, I think it's a very sound argument, except the way it's played out so far is that there has there have as as the various scandals that have dogged him now, um, the way it's played out is there's there's been some bad headlines, and then people stop caring for a while, and then some bad headlines, and then people stop caring for a while, and I think he's hoping that that is and banking that that will continue to be cycle. And I, I also just think um, it's simply not in his behavioral repertoire to to take the advice that you will. He quit. He quit the governor's race in 2002. He did not like, I'm staying in here. I'm not going to let you drive me out just because I said something insulting about George Pataki. He quit the race. He dropped out of the race in fear that he was going to be humiliated in September in the primary. So I'm not sure that he is Mr. Tough Guy who just stands at, you know, he, he read the writing on the wall then, and he was living to fight another day, and he did. Eight years later, he became governor. Uh, four years later, he became attorney general. So he did do something. He made, you know, beat a kind of strategic retreat. Uh, that won't be the case in this case. But uh, he stays in. They're going to impeach him. They're going to impeach him, and then they're going to remove him from office. But when? I mean, the, the a month. years of justice, justice here are going to grind very slowly. No, I, mean, I, 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 I mean, you seem very com- convinced that the impeachment committee will reach this judgment and it will be overwhelmingly approved of by the legislature. I, I am not, I am not so convinced. Okay, I, I just think when, when now, while the iron is hot, now they can strike, but events will intervene. Okay, if. The Democratic Party had turned on Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton would not be president. Wouldn't have been president after Monica Lewinsky. The dynamic there was the Republicans went after Clinton, and the Democrats circled the wagons. What you have here is a Democratic assault on a Democratic governor in a Democratic state. There's no one to protect against, right? Uh, you know, it's highly unlikely that a Republican will win the governorship 
This is Democrats protecting Democrats and a liberal media protecting the Democratic Party against a government. They have no incentive whatsoever not to impeach and remove him. He will be removed and somebody else will come in named Kathy Hochul and then there will be a there will be an election into in 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 2022 where that he will not be able to stand in uh, because he will have been removed from office and there will be another democrat who becomes governor in 2022 they will hold on to their majorities in the house if he stands there lee zeldin who is running for governor the 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 um republican representative from suffolk county in the house will have a real shot at becoming governor there is every incentive for this impeachment and removal to happen. There are very few incentives for them not to let him, in part because they've stopped being afraid of him, and in part because he will not really have the access to the media to deliver the, you know, this one, you know, slept with a 14-year-old girl stuff that he you know, whatever, or, you know, this one <clears throat> beats dogs or has cockfighting in his basement or something, whatever it is that he has on people that he collects in his files. You know, he needs to be able to scare them into silence. And if they're not scared anymore, they will want him gone. That's all, that's all I'm saying. So he either can be, he can either quit or, and then live through the indictments and, 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 and if he goes, you know that the DAs are going to drop the charges. You know that the DAs are going to stop looking at it. He will have, he will have, you know, taken the ultimate knee and they will, they will, that's, that's, anyway, that's what I think. You guys are making good counter arguments. These are all interpretations of somebody's psyche. He's a crazy person. There's no way of knowing. We'll see what happens. <clears throat> And, you know, given uh, what he's going through, he may want to order some Tommy John underwear uh, from uh, particularly the new Apollo brand, the newest and most advanced men underwear yet from Tommy John with that performance grade dry release fabric that is exclusive to Tommy John. It's Tommy John's latest comfort innovation. You can't get it anywhere else. It's proven to keep you drier and up to seven degrees cooler than regular cotton underwear. Support supportive soft stretches for the perfect fit every day available up to size 4xl with over 15 million pairs sold and like all tommy john underwear it comes with the best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee right now get 20 percent off your first order at tommyjohn.com slash commentary go to tommyjohn.com slash commentary for 20 percent off tommyjohn.com slash commentary see site for details so <clears throat> we have successfully managed for now a show in two thirds to not talk about COVID, but now we got to talk about COVID. Um. So, uh, Abe, you you said something very dark uh, yesterday, uh, um, or Noah? I'm sorry, you said Noah. something dark. Oh, that's so unlike me. Uh, you said this is going to sound awful. This is to us, but uh, oh. but if uh, you, you don't well, want to. Okay. <laughs> Okay. okay, I'm sorry. Oh. Okay, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna make. I'm not gonna. <laughs> no, say go ahead. It. I mean, it's too late now. Okay. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not no, no, ashamed of it. It's fine. It's I fine. I didn't write it publicly, but now, no, now you must. Otherwise, okay. I shall. Okay. If ten thousand people don't die in the next few weeks from COVID, there's going to be genuine disappointment, and there is a kind of ghoulish frenzy going on here as the caseload increases. Right. Uh, the caseload is up. We're approaching a hundred thousand new cases a day. Uh, the death toll is tragically now, you know, going up. It's, it's now uh, closing in on 400. Um, at the beginning of July, it had dropped to close to 100. So that's a huge increase though. Of course it is, it is, I don't know, an eighth, uh, as bad as it was, you know, in, in January, uh, the death toll. And, um, so why why do you say this, Noah? <clears throat> well, allow me real quickly. I'm just scrolling through my records here that justify this this comment. Um, first of all, the death rate is rising. It's at a point now that it's I think it's unacceptable given the prevalence of vaccines and the ready availability. Um, hospitalizations are rising. However, we are not even in the same universe as a place that we were at the beginning of this year when it comes to hospitalization rates, infection rates, and death rates, all of which corresponded very closely 
we've broken the link between hospitalization, infection, and death. They are uncoupled, wonderfully enough. And yet, the tone that I hear from our public health officials and the people who observe this sort of thing with a, a manic, obsessive quality um, is apoplectic in a way that it wasn't at the height of the pandemic. Just as one example of many, I'm going to cite the ubiquitous Dr. Anthony Fauci, quote, there could be a variant that's lingering out there that can push aside Delta if another one comes along and it has an equally high capability of transmitting, but also is much more severe than we could be in really big trouble. And he's not wrong, but at no point did we hear anything resembling this kind of talk when thousands were dying a day from COVID. And I, my speculation there is, well, maybe that, because these people are prone to sort of elementary psychological manipulation of the sort that my six-year-old subjects me to on a regular basis. Um, but maybe the objective at the time was to project calm, you know, to try to, to, try to inculcate in, an, in a nervous population something resembling calm in order to avoid the elite, pan, elite panic phenomenon that we talk about so often on this podcast. And the imperative now is not to project calm, but to project panic, abject fear and terror just to get you to vaccinate, to get you to hunker down, to get you to wear a mask, to do something to get you to observe the strategies that public health people want you to observe. Because they're, what they're warning about is a hypothetical threat by their own admission. It's a threat that does not yet exist. Could someday. A lot of hypothetical threats loom, as we should be familiar with, aware of, but certainly not uh, paralyzed by. Um you know, an earth killer asteroid, all you know, that sort of thing. That's just, it's possible, but it's the sort of thing that shouldn't stop you from going outside. Um, and yet that's what we're hearing so much from these, from these people. So if we do not get the sort of just cosmic comeuppance that I think these people believe certain states, certain people are due, there's going to be genuine disappointment. They're going to be dissatisfied by that outcome because it won't, it won't prove, it won't demonstrate the rectitude of their outlook on the pandemic. I, I agree entirely. And I don't actually think that's new though. I mean, um, there were points throughout this when, you know, people in uh, states like New York were, you could tell um, gleeful at the prospect of Florida, uh, Florida's numbers going through the roof uh Post Super Bowl, uh, you know, uh, you know, any when anyone showed any defiance of uh, maximalist lockdown psychology, uh, there was the hope that they would have to pay a price for this. Um, so just to uh, bring back how everything old is new again, let me read a, a an AP story. Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Associated Press crowds of bikers are rumbling their way towards South Dakota's Black Hills this week, raising fears that COVID-19 infections will be unleashed among the 700,000 people expected to show up at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally. The rally, which starts Friday, has become a haven for those eager to escape coronavirus precautions. Okay, let's talk about this, because this is exactly the story that we got last summer about how the Sturgis uh, uh, rally was going to be a super spreader event that was going to kill everybody once people went home. What is the nature of the Sturgis bike rally? Can we share this? It is outside. It takes place in the outdoors. There is almost no structures where anybody goes indoors. They ride on their motorcycles. They camp out. They go to the rally. They leave. They're not going inside. The guidance from the CDC says you can be unmasked outside. Yeah, here's an injustice for you. All of us know the name of the Sturgis Bike Rally, none of which I think I, none of us were familiar with this thing. Oh, I was. I was. Previous, I was. Really? Go ahead. Previously? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, 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 commissioned, I commissioned the articles on this when you were a baby. I was commissioning, you know what? There's this amazing thing happens in the Black Hills of South Dakota in the 1980s. So just so, yes, I was. Fair enough. Please right. go on. I, I don't doubt your, uh, your okay. experience. Nevertheless, I was not. And I can't imagine anybody in my particular circle was. We all know it now. Uh, How many people know the cocktail name? party? Go Georgetown cocktail party people Georgetown, living in your yeah, bubble. In Go ahead. Nevertheless, um, but you know, uh, yes, 
just snobbish elites. That's yes. that's my circle. That's you, yeah. Friends, and we don't yeah. bike very often, so it's not our not our demo. Fair enough, fine. But nor is Bear Week. Bear Week ain't my demo, and none of us are talking about Bear Week. Bear Week is what done it. We should be talking about the object the irresponsibility of Bear Week. Bear Week should be the headline. No one's talking about Bear Week. Bear Week, for you, gen- you people in the audience yes. who are blessedly ignorant of what Bear Week is, are very big, burly, homosexual men with hair. That's, bear. that's a bear. And they gather, and they have a lot of fun together. And that's what happened in Providence. Provincetown, I'm sorry, Provincetown, that predicated the CDC study, which forced you back into masks. We're not talking about Bear Week. We're talking about Provincetown, as though the town is to blame. The town didn't do this. But here's what, here's what Sturgis and Bear Week really do have in common is that they both generated the worst data analysis intended <laughs> to scare the lights out of the country. Right. Um, right. Uh, the l- last year's Sturgis rally was like the, the proto-Provincetown scare in that experts say it's going to infect as a result of this. Uh, I forget the insane number that they had plotted out of, um, of, of infections that were going to come from this outdoor Remember, the Provincetown Bear Week outbreak, zero deaths. Zero deaths. No one died uh, from the uh, outbreak that caused the CDC to reissue guidance on, on indoor masking. That's not to say that people aren't dying. Obviously, people are dying. It's not to say that caseloads aren't increasing. Obviously, caseloads are increasing. But what we have here are two tracks in the United States. One of the tracks is unnecessary, but there it is. There are two tracks. There are people vaccinating. Okay? And then there are people getting COVID who didn't vaccinate. And so people are going to get to immunity one way or the other. And if that's the game you want to play, if that's the game that people want to play, they want to expose themselves to COVID to get COVID and, and not vaccinate, and then they'll get the antibodies that way, and, and, and be at, at substantially greater risk of more serious complications than if they, than if they had vaccinated. Uh, that is their remit, right? The only thing that matters now, the only thing that matters now is what happens with Americans under the age of 12 who cannot vaccinate. That is what matters because everybody else, or maybe even between 12 and 18, if their parents won't let them vaccinate, everyone else in the country is on their own. Everyone in the country is on their own. 18 and over, if you don't get vaccinated, you're going to get the Delta variant or you're very likely to get the Delta variant in the next couple of weeks. And if that's if that's the game you want to play, enjoy. You know, uh, for some reason, we saw the Kaiser Family Foundation has... Uh, more than 50% of the unvaccinated in a poll released yesterday saying that they think that the vaccine will be more harmful to them than getting COVID among the unvaccinated. That is deranged. It is, it is illiterate. It is embarrassing. It is conspiratorially driven. And it is, it's not really tragic, but I mean, I think there will be tragedies buried in that, in those numbers. But that is the choice they are making, you know? And in that sense, it's like motorcycle riding, you know? You can wear a helmet or you can't wear a helmet. You can make laws that say people wear helmets, they won't wear helmets. They're over 18 years old, it's on them. If they crash and they fall and they get a traumatic brain injury or they or they die, that's on them. You know, if you don't wear a seatbelt... That's on you. Granted, these are things in which there are actually, there are sort of, you know, laws and regulations. There aren't even for vaccination uh, in the United States. Um, so I, I don't know what to, I don't know what to make of this. Uh, I think that there is a ghoulish, dark ghoulish frenzy going on. And, uh, and you can watch it on the news, on cable news. You can watch it on the Today Show and all these shows every hour on the hour a ghoulish frenzy, and the key to the frenzy is the word Florida. What they right, want which isn't, which isn't is even to the, focus. 
which isn't even the worst. I mean, that's that's how it's so nakedly political. The worst outbreak is in Louisiana, where, where a dev- Democratic governor presides. That's where you should be seeing all the people saying, well, look at this, these hicks, these, these idiots who won't get vaccinated. But Louisiana is very black. Louisiana is more democratic. And Louisiana just doesn't fit the model that they want. They want Ron DeSantis's head. And it's so nakedly obvious now that this is more political than epidemiological that it's hard to ignore absolutely so with that we will uh we will say goodbye until tomorrow for noah and abe and the absent christine rosen i am john Podhortz. keep the candle burning